you would turn with me in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 22. If you're looking uh, in the seats in front of you, there's Bibles there, and it's on page 196. And probably on page 197 too, I don't know, it's long. We'll get to that in a second. Last week we ended Joshua 21, after the land has been divided, God has fulfilled His promises to His people, they have victory over their enemies, and now they are, in a sense, going their separate ways as they are going to the land that God has allotted them. And so, at the beginning of Joshua 22, which we read earlier in the service, we have Joshua giving a blessing to what we'll refer to in the sermon as the eastern tribes, the two and a half tribes that were going really to the borders of the land. They were crossing back over the Jordan, and so they would be separated geographically from the rest of the tribes. So Joshua gives them their their blessing, he commends them, and now we come to, uh, we'll start in verse 10, picking it up, where as soon as all that has settled, and as soon as it seems that things are quiet, the action picks up again. So let's read it. See what God has for us here today. This is Joshua chapter 22, beginning at verse 10. This is, this is long, so hang with me as we hear the word of the Lord together. And when they came to the region of the Jordan that is in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. And the people of Israel heard it and said, Behold, The people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. When the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. Then the people of Israel sent to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, And with him ten chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel, every one of them the head of a family among the clans of Israel. And they came to the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, in the land of Gilead, and said to them, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, What is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? Have we not had enough of the sin at Peor from which even yet we have not cleansed ourselves and for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord that you too must turn away this day from following the Lord? And if you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. But now, if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands And take for yourselves a possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord and make us as rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, break faith in the matter of the devoted things? And wrath fell upon all the congregation of Israel? And he did not perish alone for his iniquity. Then the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh said and answered to the heads of the families of Israel, The Mighty One, God the Lord, the Mighty One, God the Lord, He knows. And let Israel itself know. If it was in rebellion, 
or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. Or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord Himself take vengeance. No, but we did it from fear that in time to come your children might say to our children, What have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, you people of Reuben and people of Gad. You have no portion in the Lord, so your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. Therefore we said, let us now build an altar, not for burnt offering, not for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you, between our generations after us, that we do perform the service of the Lord in His presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings. So your children will not say to our children in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. And we thought, if this should be said to us, to our descendants in time to come, we should say, behold, the copy of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings, not for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offering, grain offering, or sacrifice, other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before His tabernacle. When Phinehas, the priest, and the chiefs of the congregation, the heads of families of Israel who were with them, heard the words that the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh spoke, it was good in their eyes. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, said to the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the people of Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is in our midst, because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. Then Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, and the chiefs, returned to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the land of Gilead, to the land of Canaan, to the people of Israel, and brought back word to them. And the report was good and in the eyes of the people of Israel. The people of Israel blessed God and spoke no more of making war against them to destroy the land where the people of Reuben and the people of Gad were settled. So the people of Reuben and the people of Gad called the altar witness, for they said, it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to him. Please pray with me. God, we give you thanks for your word. We thank you for this episode in the life of your people. And we thank you, Lord, that they sought you, that they were faithful to you. So we pray that you would help us as we learn and as we grow, uh, that we too would be found faithful. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the songs from my favorite decade, uh, the 80s, uh, that continues to thrive, is a song called Faithfully by Journey. I uh, heard this song yesterday on the radio, embarrassed my kids by singing along. It's a beautiful song. It's written by one of the members of the band for his wife. And it has that line there at the end of the chorus, I'm forever yours, faithfully. It's played at wedding receptions all over the country. It's, it's one of the songs you put in the rehearsal dinner slideshow. It's just a great song. Several years ago, I had it ruined for me, though. And the reason why is this, I heard the song and then afterwards the DJ came on the radio and started telling a little more of the story about the song. And he said that a few years after the song was released, the band member who wrote the song for his wife, he and his wife divorced. Indeed, they went their separate ways. 
And I went, no, no. How can you write a song like that and then not do it and then not live it out and not be faithful? And I bring that up because as we read Joshua 22, that's the question that comes to mind. How could the eastern tribes, that's the Gad, Reuben, the half-tribe of Manasseh, this uh, two and a half tribes over here. We'll try to have this be east and this be west. I don't know if that works, though. But how could the eastern tribes, who had been faithful thus far, having just been commended and blessed by Joshua, turn around, get to their land, and then not live it out? How could they break faith and in the process break the union and unity of God's people? That's the question that's raised by the western tribes as they begin to investigate this matter. How can it be that as soon as God's people had received the promised land, that they, as soon as they had been given rest by God, as soon as they had been given victory over their enemies, how can it be that they're picking up swords and shields and preparing to go to war, not against an outside enemy, but against a part of themselves? I mean, can't can we all just get along for a moment? But thankfully, this episode in the history of God's people, it has a happy ending. And in the process, we see that the unity of God's people, which will be the central theme we'll talk about today, the unity of God's people, is not a matter of just kind of getting along and a let's sit around by the campfire and sing kumbaya sort of way. But it's ultimately based on the common pursuit of God's glory together in worship and in faithful obedience in response to what God has already done for us. So the question we want to ask is, how do God's people stay unified? How is unity preserved, even in the face of adversity, even in the face of distance, even in the face of a, we'll just call this a delicate situation of misunderstanding that takes place in Joshua 22? The first point we're going to see is this, that unity is preserved by faithfulness and believing and living the truth. So as we look at chapter 22, we want to kind of go back and highlight instances where we see God's people clearly confirm their faith and belief in Yahweh, the Lord. We see it initially in the charge that Joshua gave to the eastern tribes. He confirms that they had been faithful to God's call, that God had been good to them in fulfilling His promises, that they were continued to obey God's commands that He had given through Moses and then through Joshua. And they were to love the Lord their God, to walk in His ways, to cling to Him, to serve Him, to keep His commandments. This charge echoes the charge that's given in Deuteronomy 6, doesn't it? And it also anticipates what Jesus will later call the great commandment. It's there to love the Lord with all their heart, with all their soul. Wholehearted, faithful belief in who God is and what He has done leads to loving God and doing what He commands. So in the early verses of Joshua 22, we see that Joshua commends, he encourages them for having done that to this point. He encourages them to continue on as they move back towards this land. It's on the borders by the Jordan. So far, so good, right? In verse 10, we learned that when they get over there to that land, they, they get there and they build an altar of imposing size. There's no measurements given here. We don't know how big it was. But we can assume by the description of imposing size, 
and the reaction of the Western tribes that this was not a small altar. It's at this point where we see the faithfulness of the Western tribes, the nine and a half. There was an altar at Shiloh. It was the place where worship happened, where sacrifices were made. The setup of another altar in their minds at that point meant one thing, that it was a rival altar being set up that would serve the worship idols. And so in verse 12, we see that not long after receiving their promised land and having rest from war, they are picking up sword, they are picking up shield. Because in their minds, they see a rival altar is being put up. And they know that that is not something that should happen. It's easy to read this and say, hey, hey, hey let's, all right, everybody, let's put the swords down, right? Let's kind of back off a little bit. After all, it's just an altar of imposing size, right? What could go wrong? But the Western tribes here are demonstrating for us faithfulness. They're showing zeal for God's honor and glory. They know and remember God's holiness. And they're prepared to seek His glory. And they fear God's judgment. And so what they do, they send representatives from each tribe, led by Phinehas the priest, to directly confront the Eastern tribes. The sending of Phinehas is serious business. If you think about the beginning of a football game, there's the times where some of the captains and members of the team go out to the midfield for the coin toss. You know, a lot of times maybe the quarterback's there, the star player. But I'll tell you who's always there. The biggest dude they can find, right? They don't send the punters out for the coin toss, right? They send the, the big people, right? The big guns go out. And so in this case, when we, we see that Phinehas is coming, you need to know that Phinehas was well known here uh, as a priest, but he's also known for his righteous actions in an episode that, that's actually referenced here in Joshua 22 that comes from the book of Numbers in chapter 25. You can go read it there uh, for yourself later. But the bottom line is this. Israel at that point had fallen into immorality and idol worship, and they were worshiping Baal of Peor. That's a terrible name for a god, but whatever. Um, and so God sends a plague against the people in his wrath against them. Phinehas was the son of Eliezer. He's the grandson of Aaron. And he's the one who stepped up in that time and he stopped the plague by putting to death certain folks who were committing immorality and idolatry. And he actually, I mean, he used the spear to do it. It's all there. You can go read it later. Uh, PG-13, by the way. But he uses a spear himself. And then God turns from his anger, turns from his wrath. And he actually makes a covenant of peace with Phinehas and his priestly descendants. So imagine you're the eastern tribes. You know that story and you see him coming. It's business, right? This is not going to be a pleasant meeting. The tension's building in the story and confrontation begins with Phinehas speaking. And he raises the question of faithfulness. Why would they break faith? By building this altar. Why would they rebel? Don't they remember Numbers 25? Don't they even remember their more recent events of Joshua chapter 7? Where Achan's sin led to defeat for all of Israel. So it's at this point we pause. We note the primary concern of the Western tribe. is faithfulness to God. It's pursuit of His glory above all else. And the first question they raise, why this breach of faith? that they're focused in on right belief 
and righteous living, faithfulness and belief and practice. These were the main concerns. And these two collide in worship, don't they? And so the assumption of the Western tribe is not is, is that this altar represented not just a wrong belief or doctrine, but also a wrong way of life that would lead to immorality and idolatry. Again, it's easy to read this and see this speech by Phinehas and say, hey, you're kind of jumping the gun there, aren't you? You're a little judgy, right? But you have to understand, they knew the road that leads to God's judgment. They'd seen that movie before. So here is the Western tribes have come and they've made this confrontation and they're speaking the truth. They're to be commended. They're to be understood for their faithfulness, for their zeal, for their understanding of God's holiness, for their fear of God's judgment. They were right to do what they were doing. At the same time, we also see faithfulness on the part of the Eastern, on the Eastern tribes in a totally different way. And so in verse 21, when we get there, we have our, whoa, 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 wait a minute moment, right? Where they finally get to speak and they have the opportunity to respond to the questions. And they begin in verse 22 with a creed. The mighty one, God the Lord, he knows, let Israel itself know. See, they too were concerned with faithfulness, with right and true belief. And then they go on to explain that the altar was not for worship but was to serve as a witness between their peoples about who they worshipped, the Lord. In their own way, they were also being faithful. So they longed to set up this altar as a signal to remind future generations that they worshipped the Lord, that they were a part of His people, that they were to follow the Lord. The geographical distance, the terrain around the Jordan, their location on the border of the Promised Land, put them in a situation where they feared that they might eventually not be considered a part of the people of God. And ultimately, they call the altar witness because it's a witness between them that the Lord is God. This would be foundational for their unity as God's people. That in everything, they would testify and acknowledge and live the truth that the Lord is God. So we consider this to this point. We want to think about it in a lot of different ways. What, what does it take to preserve unity? What's it take to preserve unity here at Cornerstone? How about the PCA? How about Reformed churches around the world? How about with other denominations that faithfully teach the gospel? How about the kingdom of God? Not just today, but with our past and with our future. Joshua 22 reminds us that the preservation of unity begins and ends with faithful belief in God who has revealed Himself to us. He is the Mighty One, God the Lord. The Mighty One, God the Lord. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We're going to say the Apostles' Creed here in a few minutes before we come to the table. And these are the things that we affirm. We stand with Christians worldwide in affirming past, present, and future. Testifying to the truth of who God is and all that He has done for us in Christ. And what He will come one day to do. To proclaim this truth leads to faithfulness in worship and in life. And this serves as the basis of unity. Secondly, unity is preserved by applying wisdom in conflict and loving one another. 
One of the undercurrents in this passage is the relationship between the two groups, the Western and Eastern tribes. Think about all the battles they have fought together in taking over the land. Look at how Joshua spoke to the Eastern tribes before sending them off, affirming them as they followed and served the Lord. Think about all that. Think of their backstory and think about this moment where the Western tribes began to pick up swords as they heard about this altar. We don't have this spelled out for us in the text. This might be a little reading between the lines, but imagine what it was like for them to, to be feeling at that moment. These are your brothers. You're battle-weary. You've been fighting a long time with, with the, the enemies. You're probably pretty discouraged about this even happening. So they prepare for battle, but notice that they don't first rush in with their swords. They send a delegation, right? They went to speak. They went to listen. They confronted. And they clearly proclaimed the truth without compromise. But they went to talk first. What if they would have skipped that step? Imagine the eastern tribes having just settled in and and all of a sudden they're being driven from their homes. Imagine bloodshed. All because of a witness altar. But thankfully, unity here is preserved by the application of wisdom. This was not a warm and fuzzy meeting. Don't get me wrong. Remember Finney Haas? He's the linebacker priest, right? He's a big dude. But he's not, and he's not there to excuse their apparent rival altar. But even as he speaks to them, as direct as he is, he asks questions, right? He gives them a chance to respond. And in verse 19, don't miss it. This is, you know, when I read through this and saw this this week, I was, my eyes were like, whoa. He even offers for them to come back and live with the Western tribes. Did you catch that? It's in verse 19. He basically says, if living on the border of the land is leading you to sin, we love you enough to give up part of our portions of the land to you and for you. And you can come live with us. Okay, that's love, right? Think about it. They had just divided up the inheritance. They were at rest. And he says, your holiness... And your being a part of this people is worth giving up that which is rightfully ours for you. James Montgomery Boyce says this about this passage. He says, this is costly love. But this is the kind of love that wins people to God. Often when we do actually practice discipline, and discipline is sometimes necessary, we do it in a self-righteous or self-serving way that exalts ourselves and usually repels the other party. How much different and how much more effective would it be if we paid a personal price in our attempts to reclaim those who are erring? So the Western tribes, even as they were being very direct with the truth, they demonstrate wisdom, they demonstrate love to the Eastern tribes. Again, we're going to flip it and we're going to look at what the Eastern tribes are doing. They're also demonstrating wisdom and love. They had calculated the distance. They had thought about their children They knew there could come a time where their bond with the western tribes was not remembered. Would the geographical barrier become a spiritual barrier? But beyond self-preservation, they were concerned for both the faithfulness of their people and the unity of Israel as a whole. They agree here with Phinehas. If if this is an act of disobedience that would bring the whole community in judgment, don't spare us. Bring your swords and do it. As they give their defense, 
They expressed their fear of not belonging to the people due to the distance between them. They want to be assured that their children will grow and worship the Lord. And these are the things that drive them to build this witness altar. So we consider the, the wisdom applied here and the love for one another that's expressed. It's important to note how different this looks. The western tribes fear that the eastern tribes are not worshiping the Lord and being faithful. The eastern tribes fear there will come a time where their children will cease to worship the Lord because they're not viewed as part of the people of God. The eastern tribes, are, they're focused upon truth. And rightly so. And their expression of love looks like even potentially being willing to give of themselves to preserve the truth and also preserve their brother's allegiance to it. And the Western tribes are focused on belonging to the people of God. They're looking for unity. And in the process, they're subjecting themselves willingly to the truth and even to judgment if there's been disobedience to preserve their brother's allegiance to that truth. There's There's a lot of implications here. I think as we consider how we approach conflict, whether it's in the church or in family or in life situations, here we have a few reminders, don't we? That we need to speak truth. That we need to ask questions for clarification. That we need to listen to one another. That we need to love one another, even to the point of costing ourselves something. This is what preserves unity. In our culture today, those things aren't readily practiced, are they? In the real world or in the social media world, even in the church, we hear the name calling, we hear the slander, they're shouting, there's, there's all sorts of things that are going on. So we need this word from the Lord. We need James 1 as well. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. In Ephesians 4, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow, so it builds itself up in love. So unity is preserved by faithfulness living and believing the truth is preserved also as we've just seen by applying wisdom and by loving one another. And then finally, we'll see here briefly that unity is preserved as we remember and proclaim the truth of the gospel. So we leave this episode in the life of God's people. We're left encouraged. We're left upbeat. As Phinehas sums up the matter in verse 31, he says, Now that we know the Lord is in our midst, because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. So when he makes this summation, he highlights that they now know God is with them, that He's present with them, because they've been delivered from judgment, and God has protected them from His own judgment of them. As we think about the table that's before us today, we see the reminder, the picture of our own deliverance from the wrath of God. That Jesus went to the cross, that He laid down His life, that He paid the cost for the forgiveness of our sins, that He died for us. And God protects us from His judgment and wrath by putting it upon Christ 
So as we come this morning, we, we know his presence. We know he is with us. Dale Ralph Davis says this. He says, how much more clearly can we know God is for us than when he shields us from his own wrath by placing us under the shelter of his son's cross? One of the purposes of the witness altar in Joshua 22 ultimately was to point to the other altar. The altar where sacrifice was offered. The altar where Israel worshipped the Lord. They were not only proclaiming that the Lord is God, but that they were to worship Him alone and that sacrifice was required in order to worship Him. And then we look forward and we see Christ, that He came and He laid down His life. That He became the sacrifice. That He was the Lamb He was slain to take away the sins of the world. In the book of Hebrews, it tells us that He was the one who offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins and sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies shall be made a footstool for his feet. And it's this that we remember and proclaim at the table. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. And we remember that he is present with us. We come, we eat this bread. We remember that we are one body, unified in Christ. It's here where we eat the bread, we drink this cup. We proclaim his death. His perfect sacrifice for our sins until He comes. The eastern tribes, they made the imposing witness altar to remember and proclaim that their children would be included in God's people, that they would worship God alone. The western tribes, they confronted them because they, they were also remembering and proclaiming who God is, His holiness. And both tribes came together to remember and proclaim that God was with them And they glorify God together in the resolution of this conflict. So friends, as we come to this table today, let us glorify God together as we come and remember and proclaim the truth of the gospel that God has reconciled us to himself in Christ. Please pray with me. God, we do thank you and praise you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your grace and mercy in Christ. We thank you for your word. And we pray now that as we come to the table, you would once again remind us of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ who laid down his own life for us. And we pray this in his name. Amen.